Thank you, Patty, and thank you, uh, Gary and Patty and Brian, for leading us. I was brought back, uh, that first song we sang, To God Be the Glory, to my days on the, when I lived uh, in an apartment and took the bus to Calvary Chapel, Santa Ana, Calvary Santa Ana, and we sang that from our hymnals. I was uh, reminded of that. So today is a special day, not because it's Super Bowl Sunday. Not even because we're ending our series through First Peter today. Not even because I just found out this week I'm going to be a grandpa, grandfather again. That's four, Gary. I'm tied with you now. Okay. Uh, but because we're here together and uh, worshiping God together, looking into God's Word to see what He has for us. Uh, as individuals, as the body of Christ. So, uh, why don't you join me in prayer. Father God, I just thank you for today. I pray that as we look at your word, as we end this series in First Peter, that you would be with us and that you would bless us. I pray everything that is of me would fall by the wayside and the things that are of you, of your word, truth that you would have hold on in our lives would remain. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just a little heads up, next week, uh, Pastor Brian is going to give the message, and uh, then the following week, I'm pretty sure we're going to start a series, I say pretty sure because uh, things, things happen, Lord willing, uh, in the book of Daniel. So going to the Old Testament, haven't been in the Old Testament in a while, sometimes we forget it's there, but it's big and it's important, and so Daniel seems to be uh, being impressed upon me. Now, we're not, we read the whole to the end of uh, 1 Peter, but we're not going to really touch on verses 12 through 14. I'll leave those to you. I didn't really want to get into that kissing stuff, you know, there at the end. Our focus today will be on verses 8 through 11. These are Peter's, Peter's final instructions, uh, his exhortations. He's instructing, commanding, exhorting the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, if you remember. And I want to begin this final message. I mean, if this is your first time here, first time hearing, it's kind of weird. It's the last message through the book. But I think God has something for you even in this final message. Uh, I want to begin by reminding us of Peter's purpose throughout this entire letter. Purposes, if you will. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter addressed his readers, talked about this many times, as elect exiles. Just uh, a lot packed into those two words. He's writing to those who are chosen by God, elect by God, who've received the mercy of God, not by anything they've done, but by the mysterious power of God. But at the same time, these same people must continue to live. They're chosen out, but they must continue to live in this world, in this sinful, fallen world. A world that is, was then, continues to be hostile to God and hostile to those who follow Jesus Christ. And therefore, a world where suffering and persecution for being a Christian is not surprising or should not be surprising, but even might be expected. And throughout the letter, Peter gives instructions, exhortations, commands concerning how Christians, how we are to live in this world as children of God 
and as representatives of Jesus Christ. He begins the letter by establishing our hope in Christ. If you remember back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, these are foundational, crucial verses. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter's writing to those who've been born again to an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. He wants them, he wants us, that's you, if if God has caused you by his mercy to be born again, he's talking to you. He wants us to understand that our hope is not in this temporal world which we're currently living in as exiles, but our hope is in our eternal relationship with God, in the inheritance. And at the center of that inheritance, just so you know, aren't, isn't gold and silver and things like that. It's God himself, the ultimate the relationship, an eternal relationship with God where, uh, David says, there are pleasures forevermore. And throughout the letter, he instructs us how to live in this world as children of God. He says, we are to live holy lives. I'm not going to quote, ver- I mean, read the book again, go through the messages. We're to be holy. We're to live in submission and obedience to our Heavenly Father. And as part of that, Peter also instructs us how to live in relationship with other people, people in the body of Christ, people outside the body of Christ. He commands us to love one another, to serve one another, to show hospitality to one another, and, and much more. He also gives details of, about specific relationships. He focuses in on how we're to live in submission to governmental and other authorities that, that God has placed over us. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, we find instructions uh, for living together as husband and wife. And in chapter 4, he seeks to prepare us for the fact that as Christians, living in this hostile world, we will face trials, difficulties, suffering, persecution. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, in the context of the suffering church, Peter exhorts elders in how they're to shepherd the flock of God. And he exhorts the congregation, he calls them the youngers, to submit to their elders. And then, what we saw last week, in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 5, he addresses the issue, the important issue, the crucial issue of humility. He exhorts us in the church, both elders and youngers, every one of us to have humility toward one another. And he tells us that, that, that we all must have humility. The foundation of our humility for one another comes from our humility under God, under the mighty hand of God. So he's, he's left us uh, under the mighty hand or with humility under the mighty hand of God. And that's a, a very brief su- summary of what Peter's written so far, what we've uh, covered so far. His purpose is to both give us us who are elect, hope in our eternal inheritance, our eternal relationship with God, and to instruct and encourage those of us who've been born again, chosen by God on how to live the rest of our days as exiles in this fallen world, no matter how long it is, a world that's hostile to God and in turn hostile to us, to them. 
a world where suffering is not surprising but expected in the life of a believer. Now, I'm only speculating, but it seems like he may have, Peter may have paused as he's writing this. Maybe he's dictating it and read over it, read over what he had already written, thinking, okay, I've given them a great deal to think about, a, a great deal to apply. I've given them hope and instructions for living as exiles in this sinful fallen world. But there's one final reality they need to understand. One final aspect of living in this world that must be declared. That is the presence and power of the devil. It seems that Peter saves this for last because it's something that we don't like to think about. Something that we can forget about, that we can ignore the reality of this spiritual battle we're in. I'm not sure if, if this was the case in the first century when Peter wrote, but I am sure that in our current modern Western culture, we as Christians tend to avoid talking about uh, Satan. Maybe it's because he's become more of a, a mythological figure or even a pop culture icon, right? I, I think there's a TV show called Lucifer. Have you heard of that? That seems odd to me. Instead of what he is, a biblical reality. In fact, according to the 2009 Barna survey of Americans who consider themselves to be Christians, 40% strongly agree that Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil. An additional 19% said they agree somewhat with that perspective, and 15% were not sure what they believed about the existence of Satan. Only 26%, one in four-ish, indicated that they believe Satan is real. And even though it's my guess that most of us here today fall into that 26%, we're still influenced by our culture and sometimes our church, churches that tend to downplay the devil's part in this world and in our lives. But Peter wants us to, wants to be clear he wants to be clear on the reality of the devil and his designs for you, for me. He wants us to know that while we live in this sinful fallen world, we are battling the devil. And he wants us to be prepared for that battle. So he begins by describing, and this is our first point, the devil's attack. Now today is, uh, is Super Bowl Sunday, so I thought a football illustration might be appropriate. In football, each team has both a defense and an offense. Has everybody played football? Everybody knows football? Okay, if you don't, you'll get it. And while both the defense and the offense before the game will develop strategies, okay, the defense's strategy is usually tailored to what the offense can and tends to do. The offense develops a plan of attack they have the ball, and, and their plan of attack, they're seeking to penetrate the defense and to score points. And so, the defense is greatly aided in stopping the attack of the offense when they know their plans, if they know how they will attack. In high school, I played a defensive back, and before every game, we would look at a film of the team we were playing that week. And we would prepare a strategy to stop them from scoring. 
On third down and long, the the quarterback likes to throw to this receiver, so make sure he's covered. The running back carries the ball 40% of the time, so keep an eye on him. This receiver is very fast. Either hit him hard on the line of scrimmage or give him a good cushion. Whatever you do, don't let him get past you. My point is, in football, when you're playing defense, knowing how the other team's offense will attack is essential for good preparation. And in a similar way, this probably applies to a lot of other things as well, Peter knows that as believers, we will face the attacks of the devil. And he wants us to know how to prepare. He wants to show us the game film, if you will, So in verse 8, he gives us the devil's plan of attack. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We'll look at those commands to be sober-minded and watchful in our next point. But first, I want to focus on what Peter says about the devil and his attacks. This is crucial. This is crucial for us to understand as we live as exiles in this world, because the Bible says that the devil, I don't know how we can downplay him when the Bible says this about him. He is the God of this world, that the whole world lies in his power, that he's the prince of the power of the air. And as Peter says, he is your adversary. We need to let that sink in. Peter's writing to born again believers, to the elect. So he's saying that the devil, while you're here living in, this, uh, living in this world as exiles, the devil is your adversary. He's your opponent. He's the enemy of all who trust in Christ. And as your adversary, he will seek to attack you. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Faith is key in this. We'll see this throughout with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In order to prepare for the attacks of the evil one, we need to have faith to know how he's using those flaming darts. We need to have faith in God and then know how he's going to use those flaming darts. We need to know his attacks. We need to know his strategy. And Scripture gives us several ways that the devil attacks. In fact, the the name devil... Diablos in Greek means accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we're told that he is the accuser of the brethren or brotherhood. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So we get a little glimpse of his ultimate demise. That's not our point today. Our point is that he is currently the accuser. So the devil attacks with accusations. He also attacks with deceptions and lies. He is the father of lies. As in, and in Revelation 12.9 we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And of course he attacks, I mean, again, if you're if in your mind, if you, if you don't uh, take Satan very seriously, you might want to just read the book of Revelation, because God shows his seriousness. We've seen just two examples here. So he attacks with deceptions and lies, and of course he attacks with temptations, right? 
That's how he attacked Jesus in the wilderness. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, Paul writes to the church, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So the devil attacks with accusations, deceptions, lies, temptations. And I think we get this. This is the picture of him we have. We picture Eve subtly being deceived by the serpent, hath God said, right? We picture the devil, uh, I mean, this is the, the standard picture, the devil and the angel on the shoulders, whispering accusations, lies, temptations into our ear. We know he's subtle. We know he's sly like a snake. He hides in the grass and can fasten onto your heel before you know he's there. He hides and he slithers. And even though all of that is true, and yes, we must prepare for his snake-like attacks, these are not the attacks Peter focuses on here. Instead, he writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter's clearly using figurative language, right? The devil is compared to a a prowling, roaring lion. Hungry even lion, a lion that's seeking someone, us, by the way, to devour. This is clearly an attack, but it seems different from what we usually think of. It's not a, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a lion, it's not a snake. So what does Peter mean when he compares the devil to a prowling, roaring lion? Well, prowling might be a little sneaky, But roaring certainly is not. So why is this lion roaring? If a lion wants to devour someone, you'd think it would sneak up on them instead of roaring, right? And as we've noted, the devil can and does do that. He does have his sneakiness. He's dangerous sometimes because he's subtle and quiet and hidden. But that's not the case here. He's dangerous for other reasons. A lion is dangerous, not mainly because it sneaks, but because it's strong. Even if you know it's there, you're a goner unless you have some, uh, unless you have some power more than your own, like a rifle or a gigantic net or God. We'll see that clearly in our final point. But for now, Peter's point is not the devil's subtlety or craftiness, but his power. Now, what power specifically? Verse 9 tells us, resist him, firm in your faith. We'll get to that in a little bit. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What that says is that the roaring jaws of the lion are the sufferings of believers. Read it carefully. You'll see this, resist him, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Same kinds, same kinds of what? Resist the lion because the same kinds of sufferings, the same sufferings as you're facing from the lion, resist this lion because Christians everywhere are in a fight of suffering. So the roaring jaws of the lion are the sufferings of the saints designed by the devil to devour. So that's why, I think that's why he's pointing to this method of attack in this letter, because if you've been with us, major theme of this letter is the suffering of the Christian. 
We see a clear picture of this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, where Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So in both 1 Peter and here in Revelation, the sufferings of believers are attributed to the attacks of the, the devil. And notice that the, the suffering may even lead to death. Uh, uh, be faithful unto death as you experience suffering. The devil, who is the god of this world, uses those in the world to attack, persecute, even kill believers. And these attacks are clearly meant to destroy, to devour, not just the physical life, not just the health of the believer, but ultimately to drive them away from God, to cause them to lose their faith. So Satan not only attacks subtly with lies, deceptions, accusations, temptations, but he also attacks loudly, roaring through the suffering that comes from living in a hostile, sinful world. Now, if you've been following along in our series through 1 Peter, this, might, this idea of, of, of Satan causing our suffering might sound contradictory to what we've said before. Because if you remember in past sermons, we've seen that the suffering of the Christian is the purifying judgment of God. Remember chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So suffering is God's judgment. Judgment, suffering, trials, which as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, is meant to purify, to refine God's people. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's given, he's written that, that suffering of Christians is a God-purifying judgment, that, that, God ha, that these trials are used in our lives to purify us, to refine us. And he's written, we've just read, that suffering is Satan's attack. So which is it? The judgment of God or the attack of the devil? Well, the answer is it's both. Thank you. We see this clearly in the life of Job. If you remember, God allowed Satan to test Job through great suffering. In fact, the text makes it clear that Satan is causing the suffering. Chapter 2, verse 7 of the book of Job, we read, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But the suffering is also attributed to the will of God. Just a few verses down in verse 10, we read, But he said to her, Job, wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So in the life of Job, we see that suffering can be caused by Satan, and yet be attributed to God, be the will of God. We see this in the life of Paul as well. 
2 Corinthians 12, 7, we read, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, so Paul uh, had received so much from the Lord, to keep him from letting it go to his head, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Paul says, This thorn in the flesh was given to me to keep me humble, implied it was given by God, but it's called a messenger of Satan. And really, uh, this might sound, wait, wait, this, I'm, this doesn't seem right. God, Satan, together, same, same thing. But it really makes perfect sense if you understand uh, that God and Satan are not uh, these opposite forces at work, that Satan is under the authority of God. If God is sovereign over all things, including Satan, which he is, then God has a different sovereign design in all the evil designs of Satan. When Christians suffer, the devil's purpose is destructive and devouring. But God's purpose in the same suffering is constructive, purification, testing, bringing about holiness, purifying faith, The devil aims to devour. God aims to empower and purify and prepare us for glory. So to summarize, the devil attacks, his attacks on believers, are not only the indirect, snake-like, sneaky accusations, deceptions, lies, temptations, but what Peter focuses on here are his lion-like attacks. His direct attacks through suffering in this world where he is the ruler. Attacks that he means for evil. And let's say, let me just say again, he's the ruler under God because God allows him to be. For God's purposes, Satan is the ruler of this world. His attacks, uh, he means them for evil, to destroy and devour our faith. But in the life of the believer, God uses these attacks for good, for refining, for purification. So we have the reality that born-again believers will experience attacks. uh, And those attacks will be, can be, suffering caused by the devil. But the question comes, what are we to do against such attacks? What are we to do under such a powerful adversary? under the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air? What kind of strategy are we to use to thwart his plan of attack? Well, Peter tells us, he gives us the believer's defense. We know the offense, what the offense is going to do, so we can defend against it. And that takes us back to the beginning of verse 8, where Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This speaks to the defense, to our defense before the attack comes, before the suffering comes. And this is the third time, if you read through 1 Peter, this is the third time Peter has told us to be sober-minded. So it must be crucial. And again, the word sober-minded means to be thoughtful, to think, to analyze, to be calm, to be collected. As we live in this fallen world... We're to be sober-minded. We're to be, as we prepare to experience the attacks of the adversary, we're not to panic. We're not to worry. We're not to be filled with anxiety about it. 
We're to be thoughtful, calm, and we're to be watchful. We don't want to be taken by surprise. Basically, Peter's saying, be ready, be prepared to suffer the attacks of your adversary. Now, there's a lot we could say about uh, with regards to this preparation, but let me just summarize it this way. Your adversary will attack, he will seek to devour you, so don't be drunk with wine, and you'll see why I'm saying that, or distracted by the things of this world, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Word of God. Continually walk in, the relation, in your relationship with God, as Peter has described throughout this letter, so that, that, that when the attacks inevitably come, you're prepared to resist. So be sober-minded, be watchful, be prepared to resist. For that's the main defense Peter calls for during the attack, when you're attacked. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. That word resist means to stand against, to oppose, to withstand, to set oneself against, to stand firm. So what Peter's saying is that when the devil attacks, when he roars, I mean, this is, this is specifically the attack you know. You know, it's not some subtle uh, deception. You're experiencing suffering. When he seeks to devour your life and your faith with suffering, as those who have a sober mind, stand firm in your faith, hold your ground. In fact, if you do read, we read them, but if you look further at verses 12 through 14, in Peter's final greetings, he again emphasizes the need to stand firm. The true, stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in grace and faith. Stand firm. Trust in. Uh, put your roots down in the grace of God and the faith and faith in Jesus Christ. Do not believe the lies that suffering can bring. Seems like at times of suffering, we'll talk about this, uh, uh, is, when, is when the lies... Don't think Satan can't attack in two ways at the same time. He's got this double threat thing going. He can roaringly cause suffering and subtly whisper lies about the suffering. Like, uh, if God really loved me, He wouldn't allow me to suffer. Don't believe the lies... That if my faith were stronger, I wouldn't be suffering. Instead, stand firm in faith, knowing you're not alone. Knowing that others in the brotherhood have and will continue to experience suffering at the hands of the adversary. And as God has been faithful to them in their suffering, He will be faithful to you in yours. We'll see that clearly in just a minute. It seems that the hardest thing about suffering is that it makes us susceptible to Satan's other attacks. It's during times of suffering that we can begin to question our faith. We can question God's love. We can allow fear and doubt to enter our hearts and minds. Suffering can destroy your faith that God cares or has the power to help or that He even exists. If God really exists, He wouldn't let me be going through this, right? 
And that's exactly what Satan wants to happen. And that's why Peter says the lion is roaring. The roaring of the lion's jaws is the power of suffering to devour our faith. But Peter says resist, stand firm, don't allow temporal suffering to devour your faith. That's the believer's defense. That's what we're to do. Resist, stand firm in our faith, continue to trust in the mighty hand of God, in humility. I think we can back up to that. In humility, trust in the mighty hand of God. Okay, so we have the believer's defense against the attacks of the devil. Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist, firm in faith. But that raises an important question. We have this defense, Satan's attacking, so the question is, can a Christian be devoured? Again, Peter says in verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's purpose is to devour. Devour is not to, you know, it's not like a, uh, a cat playing with a mouse. It's not a scratch. It's not even a maul, not even to womb, to hurt. It means to chew up and swallow. And I don't think there's any way to make this mean anything less than uh, Satan's aim is to bring you to your total destruction. The devil wants to take people with him to the lake of fire, to his ultimate demise. Now, Peter says this is the reason we should resist him. Verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith. He's trying to devour you, so resist him. Now, what are we, what are we to make of this? Is it just a game? Is devouring really possible? Christians can't be eaten by the devil, can they? They can't go to hell, can they? So you might think, uh, well, this battle that we're talking about is sort of like a paintball. The bullets or, or little balls hurt, but they can't really kill you. But let's fight, let's resist, let's pretend it's real. Is that what Peter's saying? I don't think so. I think devouring is real and resisting is real. And what's at stake is heaven and hell. Being devoured in hell for eternity versus uh, a temporal suffering, merely being mauled, even killed physically, uh, imprisoned, followed then by eternal glory. So the attacks are real. Satan's purpose is clear. But can a true born-again Christian possibly be devoured by the devil? Well, I believe that answer comes in the next verses where we see God's ultimate victory. Let's answer the question by walking through verses 10 and 11. Here we see that the battle belongs to the Lord. We have our part. We'll talk about that. Be watchful. Sober-minded. Resist firm in your faith. But ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. Could we sing that? And No, I'm just kidding. Spotify, cue it up. No, I'm just kidding. We read uh, at the beginning of verse 10, chapter 5, And after you've suffered a little while, 
Remember, suffering relates back to that prowling, ro- prowling, roaring, devouring lion. And that phrase, a little while, is one word in the Greek meaning a few or a little. It could mean, it could refer to intensity or to duration of the suffering. But the point is, no matter the intensity or the duration in, of your suffering, it's temporal. It's as you're living as an exile in this life. If you remember many years ago, I did a message. Uh, this is before I was even pastor. And I took a fishing line and I strung it from the front of the church to the back. And I put a little piece of gum and I said, that's this life compared to eternity. And it's even, and the fishing line goes on and on and on. So compare, no matter how long your suffering is in this In this life, it's a little while compared to eternity. So after you have, firm in your faith, resisted the temporal suffering caused by the attack of the devil, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Notice that Peter emphasizes the grace, the unmerited favor of God. He's not saying that you earn eternal glory in Christ by your suffering for a little while. He's saying that eternal glory in Christ is a gift of God to those who suffer a little while. Know this, the God of grace is promising you eternal glory in Christ. You may say, it can't be for me. I'm not qualified. I'm not spiritual enough. Peter says you don't start being qualified. You start with the God of all grace. Grace precedes all qualifications. You, you, you may have this promise freely if you will believe in this God of all grace. Notice also that those who suffer a little while are those who God has called. These are the elect, the true Christians. Those who God has chosen by his mercy to receive eternal glory in Christ Jesus. So there's the first hint at an answer to the question... If you've been called, chosen by God, you will not be devoured by the devil. Instead, by his grace, you will receive the promise of eternal glory in Christ. Or put another way, what this verse promises is that if God calls you to his glory, he's going to get you to his glory. Attacks by the devil, a little suffering in between is not going to stop him. And then Peter continues, after you've suffered a little while, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. No matter what the devil throws your way, no matter the suffering he causes, God is at work. God will, in his time, restore you. Whatever you've lost will be gained. He will confirm you. Your resistant faith will be confirmed. This is a a big deal, I think, in suffering. Uh, It's a little difficult, maybe, for us to get our heads wrapped around, but one one of the great benefits of suffering is as you come through it, and as you've stayed firm in your faith, you go, oh, my faith is real. You might have doubted your faith before the suffering. Now, God has confirmed your faith, and you can move on, and you've matured. He will strengthen you. Your suffering will not result in a loss of faith because God will strengthen you. It may result in a loss of faith if God doesn't strengthen you, but God will strengthen you. 
Instead, by God's grace, He will establish you, finally. He will stabilize you. He will cause you through the attack. He will use it that you might be grounded firmly in your faith. He will be victorious in your life. The promise of God's ultimate victory in the lives of the true born-again believer is seen throughout the New Testament. We saw it in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Speaking of those that Peter, you know, we read the three and the four. Now in 5, speaking of these born-again believers, Peter wrote, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God promises to guard, to protect, to secure those who trust in Christ. And in Philippians 1.6, we read this familiar verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God promises to complete the work he's begun in our lives. God's work will not be thwarted by the attacks of the devil. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 8, we read, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God promised to sustain you to the end. Therefore, the attacks of the devil will not lead to you being devoured. And finally, Romans 8.30, we read, And those he, who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, God will accomplish his purpose in your life. He will see you through to the end. He will see you through to glory. By His mighty hand, God will bring the elect safely through this fallen, sinful world. He will keep them. He will keep us from being devoured by the devil. And Peter ends with these words uh, of tribute and prayer. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God can establish all his promises, including ultimate victory over the devil, because he's the ruler. He has dominion. He has power and strength over all. Not for a little while, like our suffering, but forever and ever. He rules over you. He rules over faith, over your faith, over your ability to resist. He rules over the devil. God is infinitely more powerful and stronger than Satan. And by his power, God will achieve ultimate and eternal victory in the lives of those who trust in him. Therefore, when God promises to successfully get us through the attacks of the devil and bring us to glory, he can do it and will do it. Dominion belongs to the Lord. So I hope... That, clear, that, that clearly answers the question, can a true elect born-again believer be devoured by the devil? And the answer is, no, no, no. Three times no. So what does that mean? For, we're still left with the question we started with. What does that mean for you and me today as we prepare for uh, experience, uh, as we prepare for the experience of being attacked by the devil. If the battle belongs to the Lord, and if we're assured of God's ultimate eternal victory, then can we just sit back and enjoy, bad word, ignore the devil's attacks? Can we? 
No again. No, no, no. Why? Because that's not what God has told us to do. Because a true, it's a, it's a, okay, we'll get it. A true born again elect Christian will resist the devil firm in his faith. They have, we have the Holy Spirit inside moving us to fight the fight of faith. Remember these attacks, uh, these sufferings are a test of faith. And as I've said in other messages, suffering attacks here will purify the individual by strengthening their faith as they cling to God. If you, if you uh, have some doubts about whether you're this true born-again Christian, I don't know how to do this, but go find some suffering. Let yourself suffer and see where, where it takes you. You'll know. You'll know at the end. Will you cling to God? Or will you run from God? Will you say, ah, this didn't work out? Will you be that, uh, that seed that was in the that was planted and did fine at first, but when tribulation came, suffering attacks will purify the individual, will strengthen their faith as they cling to God, and suffering attacks will purify the church by ridding us of those whose faith is false as they reject God. I can't, you know, this isn't working out, I'm suffering. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm going to try something else. So it's foolishness and presumptuousness to say, I can't be devoured by the devil. I'm eternally secure without then living a life of faith and resisting firm in faith. Because those who are truly born again will have a life of faith and they will resist firm in faith. As believers, when the devil attacks with suffering and seeks to devour our faith, we know two things. First, the battle belongs to the Lord, that he will be victorious, he will bring us through to glory. And second, he who will bring us through to victory has called us to resist firm in faith. And these two things come together in this way. When Satan roars with his suffering in your face and he threatens to devour you, don't say, oh, I'm eternally secure. There's no real threat. Rather say, the God of all grace has called me to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And after I've suffered a little while from your claws and fangs, He, God, will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish me. He is a God of all grace. He is a God of absolute dominion. Satan, you can maul me, and you can even kill me, but you can't devour me. He has called me to glory, and he will get me there. He'll get me to glory. So it's that, it's even trusting uh, the truth of God's ultimate victory. That's what it means to resist firm in faith when you're being attacked. That's how to resist by trusting the promise that God will not let you be devoured. Not that you have the power in your great resistance to not be devoured, but that God has called you to resist and He will strengthen you in your resistance. 
that you will not be devoured. That God will bring you through all trials, difficulties, and sufferings, attacks in this world, and that He will use these things to purify your faith, to grow your faith in this life, and He will bring you through to glory in the next. So take this promise of God's ultimate victory. Believe it. Be saved by it. Rest in it. But fight with it as well. Resist with it. Persevere with it. It's, your, it's yours free from the God of all grace. Would you pray with me as we conclude our series through First Peter? Father God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this reality. Oh, that there is a power in this world, a being who rules this world, that we live in as exiles, that's seeking to devour us, Father. But, but Lord, let us not be, take it, let us take it seriously, but let us rest in you and trust in you and believe in you and stand firm in our faith in you to deliver us through. That no matter what attacks, what sufferings, even what lies and subtleties and temptations come our way, or that you have dominion over all, that you have dominion over our lives. Lord, I pray you would continue to strengthen us, that we would be firm in our faith, that we would resist in the power that you've given us. For in Christ's name we pray, amen. You will stand with us as we close. Dan, you'll have to cue us up. <laughs>